0: First, it's back to school. Now, yesterday, the B.C. Teachers Federation issued a warning about COVID-19 combined with the wildfire smoke in the air. The teachers union putting out a statement yesterday saying, quote, teachers and students should not be in crowded classrooms with no ventilation or fresh air. They want the government to step in here. Okay, let's uh, get the reaction now from the education minister, Rob Fleming. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Minister, thank you for coming on.
1: Thanks for having me, Mike.
0: Okay, I appreciate it. A busy day for you, so I appreciate your time. First full day of classes for kids. We yeah. got the, the wildfire smoke in the air. Are, have you given any thought at all to closing schools down because of the smoke?
1: No, we've relied on uh, public health and uh, some of in Metro Vancouver, for example, that monitors air quality to to make that call. They're looking at uh, what uh, what it means and and giving warnings and advisories on that basis. So really, what? The advice is that most school districts right now, based on uh, public health input, is, is to avoid strenuous exercise, so PE classes, I imagine, will not be uh, held outdoors. Uh, allow kids to go outside for recess uh, who can tolerate the smoke, but anybody, of course, who has a an underlying health condition where that where that's not advisable should stay indoors.
0: Okay okay, the teachers union putting out that alert saying they're concerned about this. They want Dr. Bonnie Henry to step in. They want the Center for Disease Control to step in. You know, last week teachers were told open your windows if you've got a crowded classroom. Now they're being told to close the windows because of the smoke. Is this safe?
1: Yeah, it is safe. There's lots of layers of protection in the school system that are designed around the COVID safety plan that we have. And uh, and again, kids can go outdoors on their breaks, uh, staying in their learning groups, making sure they pay attention to uh, hand hygiene routines. Uh, It is the first day of school, as you mentioned. So a lot of this is new. This is a a practice day for kids to to, uh, get into and settle into their routines that uh, is going to keep them safe uh, learning together uh, for this school year.
0: Yeah, but if you got 30 kids in a class, and some teachers who are worried about that many kids in a confined space were told open your windows, and now they're saying now they're being told to close the windows. It's kind of like a, a double message. I mean, is that, you know, what if you have a large class like that? Keep the windows closed because of the smoke. Is that your advice?
1: Well, advice would be with the learning team. Is can can you use uh, multi-purpose space in the schools? Get kids apart, do different activities. Um, you know. A class as large as thirty is an outlier, Mike. Um, our our average kindergarten class size is eighteen. Our average primary grade class is twenty students, and even our average grade eight to twelve class size in British Columbia is twenty two to twenty three students. So, yeah, but
0: there but there are classes with thirty kids, though. It's, yeah, they, they, may,
1: they may be and they may be in classes no, are. that are in that are in, yeah, and they may be in they, they may need to get into uh, larger spaces, use some multipurpose space, uh, those sorts of things uh as uh, as we get through the uh, wildfire season that has been in, um that has just erupted in Oregon and Washington
0: Okay do you anticipate any any teachers uh not showing up for for work today because the teachers union has put out a statement I'm looking at this morning advising teachers who uh, to use a sick day today if they have any respiratory symptoms or they report and report health and safety concerns immediately with the smoke in the air your thoughts
1: I, I don't know. We'll have to monitor that uh, just to see. Uh, we've got you know every school district, of course, is the employer, and and they're they're the ones who would be contacted by uh, a teacher or support staff member who uh, may have a, a chronic health condition that uh, mm-hmm. where the, where this air quality, this this poor rating, is is posing a, a risk to them.
0: Okay, it's the first full day of classes for most kids. Last week, it was basically just kind of an orientation day. Uh, what are your what are your thoughts on on the back to school year so far
1: uh, I have to say that uh, the seventy thousand uh, uh, employees uh, from from uh, principals and vice principals to teachers support staff custodians bus drivers the entire sector just really rallied together a lot of people gave up weeks if not months of their summer vacation to do timetabling to Uh, post the uh, health and safety plans that were district-specific based on the provincial guidelines and the provincial planning. And you saw a lot of creativity, a lot of good things. You saw Ontario imitating some of our larger school districts here in terms of how to do it when it comes to hybrid learning. We've probably got about 100,000 high school students involved in a hybrid learning program. Uh, So just a lot of thoughtfulness, a lot of supplies being ordered, uh, and teachers beaming with pride that they were ready to welcome back students ready to go uh, working with educational assistants uh, there's always going to be a couple of hiccups for sure, but uh, I think what you saw out there was uh, parents really appreciative of, of the clarity, the effort. Some of the communication, of course, didn't arrive until days or a week uh, ahead of time, but uh, it, it did get there, and we started up the schools successfully. So this, this week will be critically important just to, to start the learning. I think the, I think the whole idea of an orientation week just around COVID safety, the first two days, just with staff and employees, was a, worked really well, and and welcoming back students for on the Thursday and Friday was 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 a good move.
0: Okay, speaking to BC Education Minister Rob Fleming. Speaking of that hybrid learning model, let's say you've got a parent who is immune compromised or a member of a family they're worried about their kids going back to school during the pandemic. They want to have a distance learning option and keep their child at home. Can you assure uh, all parents out there, no matter where they live in BC, that that option is available to them? And if they do decide to take a distance learning option and keep their child at home, that they will not lose their spot in, in the school when when all this is over, hopefully. Yeah, well, that
1: is absolutely our expectation. So there's there's a couple of different types of families we want to accommodate. One would be the family that's just a little bit unsure right now. Uh, in terms of you know they, they, they want to wait a bit uh, and so we would probably call them a distance supported family that is in a transition plan and then we've got the kind of medically accommodated families that, that you've, you've mentioned as well where they're not likely to come back at any point during the school year they need a robust uh, remote learning program and um, it does look different in different school districts because the numbers are much smaller and say a northern district than they are in a, in a southern um, uh, uh, suburban or, or urban district. Uh, so, you know, scaling up for those types of programs in Surrey and Vancouver uh, is a lot different than, uh, say, even here on Vancouver Island, where I'm talking to you from, uh, and, and that's okay. Uh, I think uh, a lot of those districts are leveraging strengths they have with distributed learning yeah. programs, but they're creating something brand new, which is a model where it's connected to a bricks-and-mortar school, that neighbourhood right. school. And we want families to stay connected uh, in the manner that you described there for sure
0: okay that 's what you want or that 's your expectation, but is that actually going to happen like can you can you assure parents that they will have that option to keep their kid at home and, the, and they don 't lose their spot at the school
1: well that 's exactly why we 've given the funding flexibility uh, normally yeah. uh, you know the system is pretty rigid, it says unless you go to what's the old term, a bum in a seat, Uh, you can't can't do a a head count and claim claim funding. And we've said, look, this is a pandemic year. We're all in this together. We need flexibility. School districts need flexibility. The funding needs to be stable and predictable. So if a kid isn't there, if they're virtually connected to the school, that's going to count for full funding that allows districts to hire additional teachers if they need to, to support those kinds of programs. And we've also flowed through the federal money as fast as we could. Uh, and we've given instructions on how that can be spent, and it absolutely can be spent to supporting remote learning programs.
0: Okay, so that's a yes then, right? Like, Parents will not lose. They don't have to worry about losing their spot in a school if they keep their child at home. Correct. That that is
1: what I'm hearing, but there there are a couple of districts where they're still working this out. So I do want to caution it. I mean if if, if families haven't been satisfied yet or they're waiting for information, this week will be a good week to, to check back in. Uh, you know, so yeah. I, I do want to I do want, I do need to provide a, a caveat there because catchment policies ultimately are up to districts. They run a lot of choice programs that, that you and I you know probably can't even anticipate in this conversation. So if there's some peculiarities like that they need to really have a conversation with their with their local uh, principal or vice principal.
0: Okay, I'm looking at a, a tweet I just received from a teacher with, with a question about the, the smoke in the air. So mm-hmm. let's say a teacher has asthma, a child shows up, the child is, for school today, the child is coughing, potentially from the, from the smoke in the air, not necessarily from COVID. Does that child get sent home? And and does and can that teacher call in sick for the day if if they're worried about being exposed?
1: Well, that 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 child who's coughing uh, should be monitored to see if there are actually symptoms uh, and and whether in fact they might need to go home. Uh, It may be, uh, and this is this is incredibly hard to comment over the airwaves, but it may it may be uh, there may come a time um, based on monitoring that child's. to phone home and see what the parents would like to do, and, and or, or even if they're going to advise that that child be picked up.
0: Okay, we're watching it closely. Thank you for your time and a busy day today. Okay, thanks very much, Mike. All right, welcome back to the show. It was an emotional day in court last week as the final act played out in one of British Columbia's most notorious criminal cases, the Surrey Six Slangs. They shocked British Columbia back in 2007. Six people gunned down in a Surrey penthouse in a gangland drug hit. Innocent bystanders were caught in the crossfire that day. Last week, gang leader Jamie Bacon was sentenced for his role in the killings. He got 18 years. Minus time served, it means he will be eligible to be released in just five years and seven months. One of the people who were killed that day is Chris Mohan, one of the innocent people caught in this crime. And his mother, Eileen Mohan, has been seeking justice for her son ever since. She was not happy with this sentence. Uh, Have a listen to what she said here.
2: How do I balance Christopher's rights with Jamie Bacon's rights? Normally the courts always stood behind families whose loved ones have died unnecessarily and, and without their own cause. And today I found that the courts behind Jamie Bacon, and my son's rights were totally forgotten.
0: Okay, it's Eileen Mohan there talking about the sentence for Jamie Bacon. Let's check in now with Kim Boland, the Vancouver Sun crime reporter. She has been on this story from the very start. I'm pleased to welcome her back to the show. Hi, Kim. Hey, hi, Mike. Th- thanks a lot for taking the time. What was it like in court there last week?
3: Well, I mean, everything is weird because of COVID, right? There aren't very many seats. There's a lot more protocols getting into the courtroom, and I think that just increases the tension, quite frankly. Uh, so we had uh, Mrs. Mohan was there with someone from victim services. Uh, the Lao brothers, two of the other victims, uh, both their parents and their sister, Jordane, uh, were there. Um, Ed Schellenberg's wife, Lois, and daughter, and son-in-law were were there as well. Other family members weren't there. Uh, Media kind of straggled in. And uh, then we got to listen to Justice Kathleen Kerr read her decision. It was as I expected that she went along with the joint submission. It's very, very rare when they veer from... Um, a sentencing submission that's made by both Crown prosecutors and the defense. So, as expected, she gave a sentence that amounted to a remaining five years and seven months in prison. So, um, you know, Eileen Mohan was very, very devastated afterwards. The other families uh, just left. They didn't say anything to the media. But, um, you know, it it was a very emotional and stressful day for the people that were in that courtroom.
0: Okay, yeah, the sentence, uh, obviously Eileen Mohan, unhappy with it, 18 years, minus the time already served for Jamie Bacon, so just five years and seven months left in, in his sentence, but as you mentioned, this was a joint submission to the judge, so even the Crown, like the Crown and the defense, they both called for 18 years, Correct.
3: Yes, they did. And, you know, basically, there have been a lot of pitfalls in this case. Uh, You know, there were some issues that were raised by the defense several years ago. Uh, They were dealt with at a secret hearing that Justice Kerr presided over. After that hearing in December of 2017, she decided that. Things that had gone wrong with the case were so egregious that she stayed the charge, the murder charge against Jamie Bacon. So, you know, that you have to kind of know that backdrop. Uh, the Crown appealed. The appeal was also done in secret uh, last year. I went to that hearing and tried to sit in on it because I really feel strongly that the public has a right to know what's going on uh, in a case of this magnitude. And um, I wasn't. I was kicked out. And then in May, the Court of Appeal sided with the Crown and reinstated the charge, but it then went back to the same judge who had already stayed the charge once. So, you know, clearly there were issues with the case and even the Court of Appeal said, yes, there are issues, but we still think there should be a trial. So, with all that background, you understand yeah. why the crown decided to negotiate a plea deal with Mr. Bacon.
0: Yeah, I so. think that's an important context for people to, to remember. Like when people are angry about this sentence, just there was a there was a risk that this entire entire case could have just fallen apart, right?
3: Certainly, certainly. Yeah. And even if it yeah. did get to verdict, you know, would there have been a conviction? We don't know. There is some certainty now. And I think that's really important. The other thing that we know is these cases for a myriad of reasons, drag on for years, so even if the trial had gone ahead, I bet it wouldn't have ended for another three or four years you know yeah. and that's very challenging for family members and for witnesses. Imagine witnesses uh, who agreed to testify a decade ago, and they're still having to deal with this in the courts you know now so right. Right. There, there are a lot of reasons why I understand why this deal was made. I also completely understand why family members, people in the community, don't think it's right.
0: Sure, sure. Speaking to Vancouver Sun crime reporter Kim Boland, Jamie Bacon, was he was originally charged with first-degree murder, right?
3: Yeah, first-degree murder, so that yeah. would have been, if convicted, a life sentence with no hope of parole for 25 years. And there would have been right. no double-time pretrial credit as there was with this case, because... Uh, when you are convicted on a murder charge, you know, you do get credit at the straight time for the time you've been in prison, but you don't get the double time uh, that he was still eligible for because he'd been arrested before there was a change in the rules and the amount of time credited became lesser. So, um, you know, a lot of complications in this case. Yeah. Um, I wrote a story uh, last week that came out on uh, Verdict Day and, you know, it. it pointed out that he's still a suspect in a number of other crimes, including murders, you know. Mm -hmm. So, yes, he is going to serve another, you know, five years, seven months on this particular charge. uh, But Mr. Bacon, you know, could face some additional charges at some point in the future.
0: Interesting. Let me play another clip here for you, Kim, of Eileen Mohan. Her son, Chris, was killed that day in the Surrey Six Slayings. And here she is talking about what, what she believes is the failing of this ruling.
2: Every year, families like me stand at the doorstep of the courthouse and and look for justice and, and time and time again, it's not delivered.
0: Okay, Eileen Mohan, you really have to feel for her for sure, as, as you mentioned, Kim. In, in this particular case, though, I wonder if this, it's, I'm sure it's difficult, if not impossible, for her to see it this way, but I wonder if this is the was the best achievable outcome for the Crown, given the circumstances of this case.
3: Well, certainly the Crown felt that way. Um, And I have to say, having covered a number of cases, even ones that resulted in convictions like Jamie Bacon's co-accused Cody Havisher and Matt Johnston, they never stand up, even after being found guilty and said, yeah, yeah, I did it, I'm really sorry, right? Now, Mr. Bacon didn't say, I'm sorry, but he did admit through his lawyer that he did it. And, you know, personally, it's nice to see uh, people involved in organized crime take responsibility for what they've done.
0: What, so, you mentioned that, so Jamie Bacon didn't say anything to the, in the, in the courtroom? He didn't say anything,
3: didn't yeah. say anything. And, uh, you know, we had the sentencing hearing in August. That was his opportunity to stand up and address the court. Uh, some people take that opportunity, some people don't, but they say, you know, at least their lawyers make a personal statement on their behalf. Um, and, you know, you feel like, okay, well, they expressed remorse through their lawyer, uh, but he issued no such statement. So, you know, I think that uh, says a lot. I think the families might have felt differently if they'd heard from him directly. Uh, It's interesting, another uh, former leader of the Red Scorpion gang, Michael Lee, he pleaded guilty in the fall of 2013, midway through his trial. And um, when he was sentenced, he was very emotional, right? And he apologized, and he listened to Eileen Mohan uh, speak to him from the witness box, and Jordane Lyle, the sister of Corey and Michael Lyle as well. He really seemed to react to what they said. I did not see that same kind of emotional reaction from J.B. Bacon.
0: What sentence did he get, Michael Lee?
3: He got 12 years minus time served, uh, so less. But he also wasn't, sort. Of, you know, we know from everything that's come out in the trial and the agreed statement of facts in this case uh, that uh, Bacon was really the mastermind of this plan. He's the one that wanted Corey Lau dead and sent his hitman to go do it. Other people in the Red Scorpions, including Michael Lee, agreed that it should happen. You know, they signed off on it, if you will. Uh, And Michael Lee, in fact, uh, changed the circumstances under which the murders were going to take place uh, because he wanted to rob them as well. So he definitely had a lot of responsibility, but probably not as much as Jamie Bacon. In addition to that, he pleaded guilty much earlier uh, which they get credit if they plead guilty earlier in the proceedings, because years have gone by and, you know, the taxpayer has yeah. been footing the bill for, you know, defense lawyers and Crown prosecutors for a long time. And then, finally, Michael Lee agreed to testify against the other two. So, you know, he really stuck his neck out and uh, agreed to be a witness in the murder trial of Cody Havisher and Matt Johnston. So quite different circumstances. Right. He's out of prison now, and I'm probably wow. out of the country.
0: Wow, what, what what makes you think he's out of the country?
3: Because he indicated he was going to leave the country when he got out of prison.
0: So okay, okay. Speaking of Vancouver Sun crime uh, crime reporter Kim Boland about the Jamie Bacon sentencing last week. Jamie Bacon's already been in jail for twelve years. I guess there's still a lot of anger out there though that he's going to get out, he's set to get out in five, just five years and seven months from now. Here's another clip of Eileen Mohan, Kim. Here she is talking about how she thinks the uh, we need to change the laws. Here she is.
2: I've written to the Minister of Justice in Ottawa. And to the prime minister, and to the uh, solicitor, uh, to the attorney general of BC, and the premier of BC, and notifying um, uh, Jimmy Bacon's case and asking them to intervene and and let's change the laws.
0: Okay, is that possible, Kim? Just in a minute we got left here.
2: Well. You know, I mean, it's important that victims'
3: uh, families advocate uh, for more rights yeah. uh, in the criminal uh, justice system. However, in this case, it really, um, it really was the circumstances of the case, the things yes. that had gone wrong in the investigation that led to this plea deal. If he'd been convicted of first-degree murder, the original charge, he'd be in prison for 25 years, right? right so, right. Um, you know, you have to wish her well. Uh, she has suffered more than anyone should suffer.
0: Kim, thank you for coming on today. Anytime. No. All right, welcome back. Let's talk about the uh, damage to the Sea to Sky gondola. Now the cable's cut again. The gondola is down again. Are you kidding me? Let's uh, have a listen to this. This is Kirby Brown, the general manager of the Sea to Sky sk- gondola, uh, speaking on the Simi Sarah show uh, this morning about how he found out about this uh, latest uh, sabotage and vandalism to the gondola. Have a listen.
4: Um, I, I got a call from my uh, my office director um, very early this morning. Um, you know, and when your phone rings now, particularly at that time of day, you, you assume the worst, and uh, sadly the worst was, well, the worst was uh, was what was reality here today. You know? So in the early morning hours, um, the exact same uh, situation occurred. Somebody climbed a tower uh, and, uh, and cut the rope this time with great, what appears to be great experience.
0: Okay, that is the uh, general manager of the Sea to Sky Gondola. Let's check in with uh, Jordan Sturdy now. He is the Liberal MLA West Vancouver Sea to Sky. Very pleased to welcome him. Jordan, thank you for coming on.
5: Hey, Mike. Good to okay. see you.
0: Oh, thank you for doing this. It's hard to believe this has happened again, but what's your reaction to it?
5: It is. It's just astounding. Um, it, it's hard not to believe there's certainly a, a personal vendetta here that uh assuming of course it's not a copycat and it's the same person but it sounds from what kirby was saying like it's uh it's uh this uh, the, the the experience is showing uh, that somebody knew what they were doing
0: yeah is there any idea why this has happened like the first time it went around was there any fear that this was some kind of i don't know eco-terrorist protest or something or is this just brainless vandalism i mean what is what is the motivation here are there any clues at all
5: no, it's uh, it's hard to know. Um, we've talked to the RCMP a number of times over the course of the last year to see if there was any updates. They're uh, continuing to work on it. I understood they brought in a, a, a federal component um, uh, into the investigation. So it, it's, um, it's been ongoing, but it's uh, disappointing that we're um, we haven't had any conclusion, we haven't had any arrests, and now we're seeing this happen again, which is truly unbelievable.
0: Okay, hopefully they can find some evidence to find the person who did this. And I know that after the last time the gondola was cut down, there was talk about a new surveillance system being put in place. And have a listen to this. This is Kirby Brown again, the general manager of the gondola, speaking on the Semi Show this morning.
4: We did, yeah. I mean, one of the most advanced in the world. And uh, we certainly, uh, again, he, whoever it was, did it with such knowledge that they clearly uh, had premeditated the act and, uh, and did it with some rapidity that, you know, uh, will make them stand out um, in a number of different ways through the RCMP investigation as they launch it.
0: Okay, Kirby Brown there, the general manager of the gondola, speaking to our own Nikki Reitmeyer there. Yeah, they put in a surveillance system last time. Have you heard any updates, uh, Jordan Sturdy, on whether there's any evidence or any video evidence that's been captured?
5: Yeah, I understand that there is has been um, some, well, they have proximity sensors. There's a very significant surveillance system that was installed last time around. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I understand that they have some evidence, but uh, whether that'll help them identify the, the individual responsible and the motivations behind it, it, it truly is, uh, it, it's bewildering why this would happen. This is a very popular regional destination. This is very well supported uh, in the community, and it's um, it's an important uh, employer and attraction. So it it really, it, it, is a, it boggles the mind in some respect why somebody would want to do this. It's very got, much is a personal issue.
0: We just got a minute left here. I mean, this has been a terrible year, obviously, for tourism, and to have this hit the community of Squamish now at a time when you know, th- there's been so many setbacks for people who want to visit this beautiful part of our province. Can you talk a little bit about that? About the impact of this, especially at a, a tough time.
5: Yes, and we're entering into uh, the the fall period where it is a uh, this is a really a really important time and a difficult time for tourism operators right around the province and in the region. And um, this kind of uh, of active essentially domestic terrorism is uh um is concerning to everybody and everybody that operates a lift as well needs to be uh, made increasingly aware or or conscious of what the risks are so this is a this is a uh, a terrible tragedy Um, unfortunately nobody was hurt but nonetheless it's uh it's real a real setback for the seat of the sky
0: all right welcome back to the show let's talk about anti-maskers now protesters who oppose mandatory mask policies a lot of them say the governments have overreacted to the covid19 pandemic it is definitely a minority of people with these views but they do make their views known including at a rally in vancouver on the weekend have a listen to this report from global news now the
4: lockdown is not needed anymore and we're here to take
0: Okay, that's what's called the March for Freedom happened yesterday in downtown Vancouver. Several hundred people at that anti-mask rally. Lots of other uh, views on display at this rally, too. Anti-mask, anti-vaccine advocates. Uh, People worried about 5G networks, child trafficking, QAnon supporters, lots of different uh, disparate beliefs on display at this rally. We saw rallies across Canada on the weekend. Let's check in with Jesse Miller now, founder of Mediated Reality. He's a social media expert. Jesse, it's nice to have you back. Thank you for having me, Mike. Okay, do you see these uh, these type of rallies? We saw one in Vancouver, it's not the first one. We'll probably see more in the future. It's it's a relatively small number of people, but they can make a lot of noise and I I wonder if uh, we're in danger of underestimating the uh, the power that some groups like groups like this have. Your thoughts? Yeah,
6: I it's interesting you mention it that way because I think the majority of Canadians are underestimating the ideologies that are kind of manifesting through not only pandemic and, and lockdown but just the increase that we're seeing in this extreme alt-right conspiracy subscription and uh, even even the high profile incidents that we've had in Canada that should raise our ire and, and make us more aware of some security concerns it seems to be somewhat dismissed because um, and, and to be fair to just the way we're seeing it the radicalization we don't see the people as threats until uh until something really big happens
0: okay what are some of the the security events you're you're referencing there
6: well, first and foremost, I mean, the most notable one we had was the Rideau Hall attack uh, earlier this year. Uh, the individual who drove his vehicle through the gates of Rideau Hall had a number of firearms that were uh, in the process of becoming prohibited uh, through new legislation uh, or or, liber- or liberal government kind of order here. But the reality within this is that the, the person's social media was starting to go down the QAnon path and and believing that there was you know a greater issue going on, these conspiracies. And once you start to see people using their sources, Social accounts, their personal social accounts, and getting very politicized, but also just very extreme in their conspiracy beliefs. Those should be the red flags that we're seeing municipal and federal police addressing some issues, similar to what we saw with uh, you know fears around terrorism. But it doesn't become an issue until you have a person drive through the front gates of Rideau Hall, and somehow yeah. this kind of just became a very quiet issue that got ignored by the majority of Canadians.
0: Okay, t- talk to me a little bit about the Q and on stuff because often when we see these rallies, anti-masker rallies or anti-vaccine rallies or what have you, quite often you'll see people wearing hats or t-shirts with the, with the Q logo, the QAnon emblem, and maybe there's a perception that this is a movement that has more sway in the United States uh, that support the Donald Trump presidency. We saw U.S. Vice President Mike Pence just the other day announced that he was backing out of a fundraiser that was ho- uh, hosted by some QAnon supporters. What is this movement, and how strong is it in Canada?
6: Yeah, well, we started seeing this huge uptick of QAnon conspiracy probably 2016, 2017. So it runs congruent with the Trump presidency. But you know they were behind the PizzaGate uh, conspiracy that the Clintons were involved with child trafficking, uh, that these uh, businesses were being used as covers for uh, for people to engage in, in the transferring of children. Uh, QAnon very much believes that there's this great awakening happening where the control of states is starting to going to start to crumble, and you'll start to see this uprising. Now, importantly, you know, we don't have borders on the internet, so any kind of radicalization, doesn't matter if it's the United States or Canada, anybody can become prone. Uh, two years ago, we had a Canadian who was identified working with ISIS. That individual left Calgary and found their way to Syria to become a speaking point on social media for anglicized ISIS propaganda. But the thing is, we become more fearful of that because it goes to the national rhetoric of terrorism and, you know, defend our borders. This is homegrown, and so once you start seeing people subscribing to conspiracy leaving things to be true because they saw it on a Facebook group, and then you start to see people renting a van or buying firearms and trying to kind of amass. That's where some of those threats come into reality.
0: Okay, speaking of Jesse Miller from Mediated Reality, he's a social media expert. Uh, speaking of social media, Jesse, how do some of the QAnon theories or other conspiracy theories spread across Canada? Like, Are a lot of them being... Um, traffic kind of on major mainstream websites still like Facebook, Twitter, et cetera.
6: Yeah, we've seen Facebook and Twitter remove certain content, but Facebook is being very slow in, in addressing the bigger issues of hosting content behind private pages. Um, just as a point, and this is like our Vancouver rally yesterday, uh, this is a this is a big tent group. If you've got anything, you can kind of come into the fold, and which is why we saw the dynamic of yesterday's rally being so, so widespread. 5G is the worst thing ever. Bill Gates created COVID. Um, all yeah. of these conspiracy beliefs all put in one space, become toxic, because you might not see individuals subscribing to every belief but they feel like they have a place where people are inclined to listen to them and that's the problem with social media is that you can take all these great things that the world has and use it as a tool to educate but if you have a person just believing something because the majority of their their friends and and people in a silo believe it that's where social media plays a huge role in how these ideas become uh, something that bubbles and then become actual movements.
0: Yeah, and for I think a lot of mainstream listeners listening right now, they I mean they might listen to this kind of stuff and think, "Well, this is unhinged. It's far fetched. It, it's certainly not mainstream." But I wonder if there's any evidence that the QAnon movement or, or other conspiracy theories are are gaining traction in Canada. It it sort of seems that way, especially since the start of the of the pandemic. These kind of ideas seem to be kind of gaining a bit more traction in our own country. But your thoughts?
6: Yeah, we actually saw an increase in subscription to, uh, to these groups during the pandemic in Canada. We actually saw about a, a 400% increase in certain groups getting more attention. But just interestingly enough, and to kind of align it with politics, if anybody here does believe that, you know, this is fringe, uh, we had recently had an event where a conservative member of parliament, uh, shared uh, some QAnon rhetoric, apologized that they didn't see, uh, the conspiracy theory or the anti-Semitism involved in the commentary. And they basically pled ignorance, saying, I didn't know. I just thought it was one of those things that you retweet because it's within the wheelhouse. And on their own Instagram account, they're actually following a Canadian QAnon account. So it's hard to differentiate yeah. whether or not we're seeing an uptick and then ignorance, or we're actually seeing con- groups of politicians saying, if I align myself this way, this actually might work in my favor for re-election.
0: Yeah, I mean, that was uh, Carrie Lynn Finley, the Conservative yeah. MP, who uh, put out a tweet saying that Canadians should be alarmed that Christia Freeland... The new finance minister, she said, there's closeness between her and uh, billionaire fund, uh, billionaire uh, George Soros, who is uh, George Soros, of course, kind of a target of a lot of these a lot of these conspiracy theories. You know, it's weird. Like uh, Soros does fund a lot of a lot of political movements and candidates and stuff. So is it isn't it legit though to question his? motives if he's giving a lot of money to politicians or wh- where's the where's the conspiracy there in your mind
6: well well, equally, and so, so anybody who's giving a lot of money to politicians should, should be under scrutiny, but not to the rhetoric that we're seeing with QAnon. QAnon actually believes that George Soros conspired with the Nazi party when he was a child in Hungary to facilitate safety. He would have been eight years yeah. old in Nazi-occupied Nazi Hungary. So when you think about these ideas of the mass of the way things work, if you took conspiracy today and said, well, Hitler's still alive in Argentina— the man would be well over a hundred years old. So how are you positioning conspiracy belief? What happened with this kind of retweet is that it's a trope online because Freeland wrote a book involving Soros that she's somewhat aligned with all of the things that he's trying to do for a new world order. There's anti-Semitism rooted in it because they target his his Judaic background. But within this, for her to retweet that and still plead ignorance but follow on a secondary social media account a number of far right-wing media agencies, we need to have politicians who are vetted based on how they're using social media and whether or not they're aligning with alt-right to get elected.
0: Jesse, thanks for coming on. Thank you, appreciate it. 911? 911. What's your emergency? Ah, I'm on a cruise ship. Ah, there was an explosion. Oh my god, the ship is sinking. I can't get out. There's water everywhere.
4: We're going down. I've got a lock on your location. Stay with me. Hurry, hurry. Hello? Are you there?